You're listening to a Sunday service podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, a place where we practice a deep and authentic welcome, where we listen deeply to where love is calling us next, and a place where with humility, courage, and compassion, we act for justice in the world. To learn more, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. During my years making a living as a singer and an actor, I I worked for a theater company called 10,000 Things Theater. And that theater's mission was and still is to keep all the props and the costumes and the theatrical pyrotechnics to a minimum so any given play could be portable that any given play could go anywhere, and that the focus was always on the story. And the plays we did were never lightweight. They were like the Caucasian chalk circle or Raisin in the Sun or Electra. And so it was theater of consequence. And the mission of 10,000 Things Theater is to present theater where theater never goes. Theater in women's shelters. Theater in homeless shelters. Theaters, theater in prisons. As actors, we were all aware that the rules of theater changed in these venues, particularly this idea of the fourth wall. The fourth wall is this imaginary barrier in theater speak that separates the audience from the characters in the play. And unlike typical theater settings where people's appreciation or dissatisfaction with the play is reserved for the curtain call, in the prisons, in the homeless shelters, there was no fourth wall. There was no fourth wall. There was full-throated recognition. There was shaking their heads in disbelief. There was loud applause of affirmation right in the middle of a monologue. And people shouted out, that's right. Or, what? Why'd you do that? Or, that's me. The story was alive, the plays were alive in ways I've seldom experienced because the story was being lived out by both the actors and the audience simultaneously. Now, if I'm honest, it was challenging to hold on to my next line as someone was shouting at my character or encouraging my character But still, I really relished, I really relished doing theater in those settings, theaters in the prison. The life experience of all the people gathered to participate in the play telling were varied and very complicated. The actors, the people imprisoned, the guards, the musicians, the stage manager, the chaplain. And I wish I could say I had been more awake to the frameworks of racism or the school-to-prison pipeline at that time, but I wasn't. I was a young actor who needed work. 
and 10,000 Things was a theater that did substantial plays that really set my heart on fire. And I don't know why the people who were in the, the, those pris, the cap, prison cafeteria or the prison gym had decided to come. Maybe it was to ease incredible boredom or because they had acted in some plays themselves and wanted to see what we were doing. Still, somehow, we all found ourselves in one room and we were all telling a story together. And what I remember the most is always, always coming away saying, something good happened today. And I said it with full understanding and commitment and belief. Something good happened today. Hearts were opened. I could feel it. I could feel it in my body. And it happened through the play, and it was good. And when I think about how we might even put a dent in the systems of oppression moving in and through our society, I think of those days in the prison cafeteria or the prison gym doing a play. May the stories told today be that alive. May our hearts be opened and that connected. And may the fourth wall come tumbling down. Come, let us worship together. First, I'd like to say hello and thank you. Um, thank you for inviting me to join as an adjunct minister to the team this year. <laughs> I'm very excited. You all have grown on me over the last couple of years. <laughs> Takes a minute. <laughs> but of all the churches I've visited and preached at and been a part of, you guys have been so welcoming and kind and, and fun and engaging and thoughtful and challenging. I've really just can't say enough about how this seems like a good fit. And most of all, you have probably for the first time, and I've been a UU minister now almost 25 years, but I've never felt since I've got to Minnesota a sense of colleagueship with your four ministers that I've had with, with no one before. And you have an amazing team, and I'm just blessed to be able to, to join and do a little something something. Thank you. And wait till you see all of us learn how to floss. <laughs> We're working on it as a team. <laughs> My first suggestion is staff meeting. <laughs> well, um, we Unitarian Universalists know a lot. In fact, everyone just about knew that the hem number was backwards this morning, and about 14 people came up to us and said, you know, it's 17 and not 71. And this really kind of proves the beginning of my points here, is that we know a lot about a lot of things. We are some of the best educated and most well-informed people on the planet. Small groups of us 
could form teams and dominate Jeopardy for weeks. <laughs> Good idea for a capital campaign, huh? <laughs> we can do the New York Times crossword puzzle in ink. We know what president signed what legislation and who was there at the signing to receive the pens. We could debate details of literary criticism while underscoring textual inconsistencies. When we Unitarian Universalists learn about a topic, we let you know. We quote statistics, we blog, we post, and organize book clubs. When we learn about horrific injustices like we've learned when reading the new Jim Crow, we are outraged and we want to do something. We want to have a meeting, a forum, or an action. We are idealists and pragmatists and dreamers who have organized for reform and change throughout the history of this faith. We learn about the causes, study issues, and work to transform society for the better. But friends, Sometimes our frenetic intellectual acumen or our articulate righteous indignation causes us to miss some things. The late Unitarian Universalist minister, Reverend Carl Wernerstrom, wrote when describing the biblical scene in which Jesus is carrying the cross to Calvary, he said, I quote, the first liberal is there in a flash, helping Jesus. But when the cross was placed in the ground and Jesus was nailed upon it, the liberal was not there. Perhaps he was off trying to get a stay of execution or a reversal of the conviction or planning for the future support of Jesus's family or the burial arrangements, or maybe he's trying to get a petition to Rome on the irresponsibility of Pilate. He's busy, this liberal. <laughs> Nowhere at the cross, though. Now, the point he makes is that we liberals are often absent at the point of crucifixion, the point of personal suffering, the time of the greatest pain and the moments when all seems lost. Sometimes we get so caught up in the electric energy of passion that we forget the significance, the fundamental importance of just being with people. Therefore, today, I will not give you a book report on prison reform or facts from the Bureau of Prison Statistics. Instead, I want you to come with me and try ever so hard to live out our first principle and frame that principle in a love that you may not fully recognize as love, or you may not understand it as love, but it's a love that you may not know you even have within you, a love that's complicated, frustrating, and perhaps at times a love that's even annoying. Come with me to my first day as a chaplain behind the wall at Stateville Maximum Security Men's Prison.
It was the day after Eleanor, Illinois Governor George Ryan offered a reprieve to each of the men on death row. The men who were waiting to die in Illinois went from Pontiac maximum security to Stateville maximum security. And I was to provide chaplain support during this momentous fanfare transfer. As the ankle chains clanked on the bus we rode at every bump, the inmates shared how angry they were to be moving from death row. Hey, chaplain, I've been preparing to die for 10 years. You're going to help me learn how to live? Hey, chaplain, you know, on death row, we take a shower every day. I heard at Stateville, we can only take a shower once a week. Hey, chaplain, they said I can't have my law books in general population. What's your God going to do about that injustice? I listened, panicked, perplexed I was, and bewildered about what I'm going to say next, and began to feel against my every bone in my body a weird kind of love. It was a love that was unexpected, rough, and raw. I was at the foot of the crucifixion with all the blood and the sweat and the oppression and poverty and murder spilling all over me. And then it was over, day one. The building was gray and ominous and smelled of harsh cleanser that literally burned my nose. My second day assignment was in the receiving and classification unit. They were, there was very limited electricity and very limited running water in that unit, and it was January. In many of the cells, I could feel the breeze pass into the window slits, into the cells. Instead of the traditional bars found on the doors of the regular parts of the units, they were steel doors, each with two-foot-wide rectangular pass-through at knee level and a wire mesh covering the square opening at eye level. If the lights were on in the cell, the oddly, it oddly represented a confessional box where I could just make out the inmates' shadowy faces. Most of the time, however, I would kneel down on the floor in front of the hole used to pass trays of food to the inmates. The inmates would do the same on their side, and we could, if we both put our heads like this through the chuck hole, we could see each other's faces without anything encumbering us. As I slid on my butt from cell to cell, I began to hear their stories, their grievances, their hopes, their shame, their lies, their loves, and their passions. After talking with nearly 30 men on this unit, I discovered that most of them were from the same four or five zip codes in Chicago, the poorest sections of the city. The question that they asked me most was, Chaplain, what what day of the week is it? What time is it? Because in receiving a classification, they put you in there without any kind of understanding of time and space so that they could see how you behave to decide where they're going to classify you in the prison. So you're there for two weeks of observation and deprivation. 
With the present entirely out of their control, they were desperate to keep track of the passage of time. And I remember that there were some plastic calendars with, uh, in the, Sal the Salvation Army had provided us, and they were in the chaplain's office. So I went back, and they had footprints on the sand, that poem on one side, and the calendar on the other. And I told the men that I'm going to go get some calendars, and I'm going to come right back. And when I returned to the unit, I announced chaplain on the wing, as I was instructed to do. And a narrow window lit up the hallway. And it was a hazy glows, glow that day. And in that corridor, 13 on one side, 13 on the other, arms and hands started reaching out, just arms and hands reaching out from the chuck holes for the calendars. As I handed out the calendars, awe, love, and loathing made a stew in my heart that I could barely recognize. A messy love stew made of our first principle. These people were worthy of dignity. At Stateville, I met the mentally ill, straight up hood rats, dangerous men, the addicted, and men who made one bad decision on one bad night. I visited people in segregation and I spent time with those who have abused, assaulted, stole it from, and murdered other people. Most of them, if not all of them, have been abused and assaulted themselves. I learned that hurt people hurt people. I told people that their mother or their spouse or their grandmother had died in notifications and I was surrounded by concrete and barbed wire and weird power dynamics. I was surrounded by suffering. I couldn't get away from that base of the cross. I couldn't get away from that crucifixion. One of my favorite pastoral, and counts, pastoral care and counseling authors, Howard Kleinbell, once wrote, for many people, life is like one long surgical operation without anesthesia. This is doubly true in prison. In addition to the mixed up lives and of the many people that end up in prison, we also have a bureaucratic criminal justice system that is broken and ineffective on many levels, which we all know. It's often full, what we don't always know, it's often full of some really great people with big hearts and a desire to help and serve and to do the right thing. But is the system a large one that takes years to change and is so far behind in this country of the rest of the world, particularly the advanced nations in terms of rehabilitation, a word we don't hear much about. I continued to work for many years in jails and prisons and practicing the ministry of presence, but I could not change an unfair sentence. Mm -mm. I could not change the interactions with that prison guard who was burnt out from too much forced overtime and not enough training. I could not change the fact that you are locked in a 12 by six foot cell with 23 hours of day inside with a roommate who never sleeps or a roommate that never shuts up. 
I could not take away their pain. I could not fix your life. I could not make people treat you better. I could not change the rules. I could not change the system. I can only be here. I can only be here. A person offering love and light in a very, very dark place. And I have known somewhere in the depths of my soul, and it took me a long time to figure out that this is enough. That that was enough to show up again and again. That love stew of our first principle that simmers at the foot of the crucifixion is enough. Sometimes at Stateville, it was enough to ask, what's on your heart today, brother? It was enough that I crossed the yellow line that I was supposed to stand on so no one else could reach me. It was enough that I would side on this, this, the idea of love and stand on that side of the yellow line and talk to people who were considered unlovable. Working on the inside required me to choose love and some days I'm not really sure what it looked like one of the images I use that helps me practice love is the experience of remembering. Now, I don't exactly mean the remembering as in terms of nostalgic reminiscences of the past or something we do with our brains, but remembering as in returning people to membership of bringing people into community or something we do with our hearts and our gut Remembership. People in prison are often forgotten people. If you get mail in prison, you're important. People who don't get mail, the guards know that they can abuse them and do whatever they want. But people who get mail get respect. I've seen prisoners share their mail with others and say, imagine that's your mother writing to you and read it that way. Mail. Communication, remembering, being a part of. Many of them are cut off from their families. They've been removed from their communities. They are known primarily for the most awful things they have done in their life. And the rest of their humanity is generally discussed as irrelevant to what they deserve. When I remember people, when I build relationship in community with them in prison, I'm acknowledging the actuality of their life, of their humanity, and affirming their worth and their dignity and their existence. I am listening to their stories. I am experiencing them as people, as children of the holy. They might be really messed up children of the holy, but still, they are family. They are our brothers and our sisters, our moms, our dads, and our children. When we remember them, we bring them back into the membership of the community. There's a program that I helped work on in Chicago called New Citizens. And it was a program for men and women coming home for prison who were going to be called New Citizens. And we started to treat them as if they were just coming to America for the first time and said, welcome home, new citizen. Welcome home. 
I worked in another program where we went to the prisons, particularly women's prisons, because they let women out of prison and jail at all kind of weird hours of the night for no reason, just to make their life hard sometimes. And we would take welcome home packages, beautiful packages and suitcases and backpacks, so they could take the stuff from the plastic bag they're leaving with and put it in something with a little more dignity. Welcome home, remembering, putting them back in community. They are part of us and we are part of them. It's like Martin Luther King Jr. said in one of his sermons. He says, in the final analysis, I must not ignore the wounded man on life's Jericho Road because he is a part of me and I am a part of him. His agony diminishes me and his salvation enlarges me. One of the side effects, though, of remembering is that when we bring people into community, we are changed. That's one of the reasons it's so hard to reach out beyond what we already know because of our comfort zone, because it changes us. I don't know about you, but I hate to change. <laughs> I like things the way they are most of the time. But when we remember, when we reaffirm another person's humanity, we are changed forever. There were men that I did not want to talk to in prison because I made the mistake of looking up their crimes and I said I will never talk to that person. But that was a person that needed me to show up at his cell more than anybody. And I did on many occasions get over myself and my judgment to be able to show up at the foot of the cross. Now this is a humanist talking about being at the cross, but I felt that love was going to be there more than it was going to be in a book. Think of it in terms of your own experiences. Who have you deemed unlovable? Who have you discarded? What prisons are you in where no one will visit you? True relationships have to acknowledge that there is an in-between. I am me, you are you. I have my experiences, perspectives, and ways of being in the world, and you have yours. And there is an in-between that sometimes looks like a gulf that we must intentionally choose to stand on the edge of, at least while we're thinking about crossing. We gotta stand there on the edge. These relationships are also not going to be perfect, nor should they be. I had complicated and painful relationship with those men in prison. It's like the Leonard Cohen song that says, ring the bells that still can ring, forget your perfect offering, there is a crack in everything, that's how the light gets in. Oh, Leonard Cohen, we miss him. Despite and perhaps because it is hard, we need to remember and to be remembered. One of my favorite hymns in the Unitarian Universalist hymnal is come sing a song with me. Come sing a song with me. Come sing a song with me that I might know your mind. Not that I might change your mind, not that I might fix your mind or convert your mind or give answers to your mind, but that I might know your mind. And I'll bring you hope just by knowing you, by singing with you and being with you and spending time with you. 
If you've ever played checkers through a bars on a little milk crate with somebody who's read more than you've ever read and you've got a degree from the University of Chicago, you'll see what it's like. I've watched many of those University of Chicago students come and go, I have to go to the library after going to prison. Come and sing with me. When hope is hard to find, I'll bring a song of love and a rose in the wintertime. When things are dark and dreary and the days are short and the nights are long and the sky is gray and cold, singing with you and knowing you, remembering you, will bring you hope and love and add a little color to your day. I'm not bringing you any answers. I'm not bringing you knowledge or wisdom or solutions. I am not bringing you those, but I am bringing you a rose in wintertime, brother. It is for you. Some color in this bleakness, some warmth in this cold. Come walk in the rain with me. Come walk in the rain with me. You will get wet. You are all going to get wet if you do this kind of work. And your mascara will run. <laughs> and we won't look so cute. It's going to be messy and we won't look pretty, but I want to know your mind. I want to know your mind. Also, notice in this song, it's not a one-time ask. The song repeats the ask three times. Come dream a dream with me. Come dream a dream with me. Come dream a dream with me. There is a certain stubbornness here, a certain persistent to build that bridge and remember one another. And since three is one of those biblical numbers that pretends an experience of change and transformation, I wonder if this is gracious serendipity as well. The central act of caring is ministry. The central act of caring in ministry is being in an authentic relationship. Or as the kids say, we got to keep it real. Just keep it real. It is not about fixing people or saving people. It's not about rescuing folks from their lives. It's about hearing and seeing and remembering in relatedness. I once asked a nun that I love dearly, who I worked with in another prison, I said, I can't do both, I said to her. I was really new at all of this. I said, I can't be going to the protests about the prison movement and then coming in here in the prison. She says, you can't do both. You can do one or the other because one requires a certain kind of surrender to this presence that you cannot be distracted by the enormity of the task outside. The enormity of the task outside someone else can do. This is an affront to the idea that we need to save the world, and I hear that, and a call instead to enter the world. She was telling me to enter the world of caring and compassion because it is when the power of our Unitarian and Universalist principles can shine brightly and unequivocally where change happens. I would remind my friends in prison a quote from Rabbi Abram um, Herschel, and he says this wonderful thing. He says, remember that there is a meaning beyond absurdity. Be sure that every little deed counts, that every work has power. 
Never forget that you can still do your share to redeem the world in spite of all the absurdities and frustrations and disappointments. So my first universalist friends, don't run, don't run, don't hide, don't hide. Let us begin right now today. Let us challenge the status quo of that yellow line distance between us. Let us challenge the talking points of liberal tolerance. Let us remember the others as yours, as ours, the others as yours and ours. Come and sit with me, don't flinch. Come and sit with me, don't turn away, don't hurry out. Come and sit with me at the foot of today's crucifixions. Don't run. Don't run. Don't run. Come with me. Blessed be. Thank you for listening to this podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We are a welcoming community that finds strength in the diversity of identities of all who find inspiration and comfort here. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting our ministry. Text FIRSTUNIV, that's F-I-R-S-T-U-N-I-V, to 73256 to make your gift. If you are able to join us in person for Sunday worship, we'd love to see you in church. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.